Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Yes Sir Hater. My name is Mark and I'm here together with... It's me, Dennis, from yes. Jersey Channel Islands. And guess what? The sun come out a bit earlier. <laughs> so that's good, isn't it? Yeah. It's, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So uh, it's episode number 23, if I'm not wrong. Uh, well heading towards our goal of 52. Uh, and then maybe we can sell it off to Elon Musk for a few billion dollars. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or making a, a, a non-fungible token. Anyway, how's your week been? Yeah, um, pretty non-eventful in many ways. Um, weather's been bad. We've had four storms this week. So it's mainly been trying to keep warm and get to the shops without umbrellas breaking. Uh, in between that, I've done a bit of work on a few projects. Um, so that's it, really. Um, pretty uneventful in that sense. Okay, so let's uh, let's jump straight into today's topic. Now, before we do that, I just want to do a quick plug uh, because I realized that we have not done so in our yeah. previous yeah. episodes. Uh, so if you are listening to us for the very first time, we don't just talk about the weather. Uh, we, we do talk about uh, things... Uh, all things educational and more importantly, focusing on evidence-based creative teaching. Uh, and so if you are listening to us for the very first time or if you are a regular listener, thank you. Uh, please do share this link uh, and also subscribe uh, as we try and bring you, uh, you know, conversations that we have around the topic of creative teaching. Okay, so that's our plug for today. Let's move, dive straight in. And today is going to be somewhat slightly different we're going to try and test this out we're going to look at the work of jeff petty in a little bit more detail uh, i think we have referenced him a little bit uh, and i know dennis knows jeff uh, in a personal capacity so we actually can have a deeper insight to the man and his work uh, but let's start off with looking at uh, evidence-based teaching as a concept and what he has said and we will do a critical analysis of this Okay, so if you are ready, so then are you? Are we okay? Let's let's. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. fine. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's historical features here that are very important. Um, I remember years back seeing a quote from Salis and Salis, and they talked about education as being a creature of fashion, mm -hmm. and kind of <laughs> this. Yeah, to me, fashion is something uh, to do with clothes and you know as you know the fashion industry works on a certain premise that um you you promote something it could be the mini skirt and i'm not trying not, not taking any sort of gender issues here and this this gets promoted it's it's in as they say i love this statement oh this is in now but the reality of it is after a while yeah, um, people have enough miniskirts and they, they stop buying them. So the fact that you being intelligent, right, suddenly miniskirts are not in. That's 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 not in anymore. It's midi skirts, you know, which are a bit longer. So um, you can't extend the miniskirt, particularly the micro miniskirt, that long. So people go out and buy the um uh, mini skirts and then a few years later obviously people get saturated uh, so it's suddenly not cool to wear mini skirts it's maxi skirts and it goes on and on and eventually wardrobes get full up 
and people throw out all the mini skirts because the wardrobes are full and they were the first thing and then suddenly mini skirts are back in now that's okay in the world of fashion i'll get that but it it does concern me when uh, we talk about it right because aren't we aren't we supposed to um have um, stable knowledge basis isn't there some kind of basis of good teaching because that's what we talk about uh, invariably um also if you remember in one of my books maybe i mentioned it in both but i refer to education as or much of the practices as educational jurassic park and what that basically means again is that um, going back to the um, creature of fashion bit, one minute we're back to basics, the three hours, we've got to be disciplined, and then, then it's education. education. Oh, let kids find that for themselves, discovery learning that kind of thing. And then suddenly research says that don't work, there's discipline problems, etc. And then we, we go back again, and it just seems to be like a Ferris wheel of moving from one thing to another. So that's the thing that I think Jeff really kind of put a stamp on jeff himself if you if you speak to him and i think he may have mentioned it in his book that he, he was looking at well what's the evidence for teaching yeah. and he, he, he has a nice story he says well what he found this is going back quite a while obviously that there's something called a a kind of cone of learning that um if mm. we if we listen we remember five percent and yes. if we do something else we remember 10%. And that, that actually, Dale's cone of learning, it's called. Correct. In fact, it, it's, it's not even validated. And Jeff was saying, well, hold on a minute, you know, there's a profession called teaching and surely there must be some better evidence. And then, as you know, a landmark, what was referred to as the holy grail of teaching, I think, in the Times Education Supplement, uh, was that John Hattie, over 15 years, the meta-analysis of what teaching methods work best uh, kind of changed the old scenario because what Atty's work uh, showed that some methods seem to work better in terms of student attainment opportunities. And all of a sudden, there is this notion of, well, um, there's perhaps a lot of evidence about learning perhaps should be put into practice and watch it well it was quite inspirational to me as you know um, we were working on a learning framework in Singapore on that assumption that let's look at teaching um, from a more evidence-based point of view because it makes sense doesn't it that if you're going to design gloves then you should really if you really want to come up with good teaching methods then you should study and what Jeff did was in his book, I think it was 2009, the first and Jeff's also written a more recent book that we can discuss later. Um, and what he did is he translated educational research. It's actually say to me that Jeff was the best um, translator of educational research around. And Jeff turned a lot of Atty's work strategies and that's what i think was groundbreaking um in jeff and mm. he, he wrote it in a style that you could understand so that's a history if you like yeah okay so let's 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 try and go a little bit deeper uh into some of his the man and his ideas uh and and i totally under, understand that but at the same time i'm also 
thinking about teaching as a creative profession. Uh, some people might be listening to this way, huh? What do you mean by teaching is a creative profession? Uh, I always feel that, uh, you know, there is so much that a teacher can do, can, for one of a, and I don't mean this in a bad way, manipulate things that they can uh, adjust, things that they can create, things that they can reuse, and so forth. And my bigger question is, does then having them fit into this idea of evidence-based teaching and learning stifle this creativity? Right, that's the big question, isn't it? Um, yeah. Okay, I'm going to throw an analogy um, back, uh, Mark, you know, one that we, yeah. we use. Um, uh, it has a, uh, a bit of humour to it, but also it, it perhaps is a good analogy for creative teaching. Now, professional footballers do certain things, don't they? Uh, apart from yep. the top back four these days, but it did improve in the week. Um, that, that is that you, there's certain evidence-based principles of good teaching. That is that you win the ball. I think it was Brian Clough, the late Brian Clough, saying football is a simple game. It's got to be reduced to basics. And that is you get the ball and you don't give it away and you move up the field and you strike it with your foot or head, not your hand, and you score goals and that's really it. So, um, what, what I'm saying is, if you look at football, it's it's very evidence-based. You don't give the ball away when you yeah. don't have the ball. You get the ball back and you move it forward and you can you can strike it, you can edit, you pass it, you can put spin on it. You can do various things with the ball. We could say, well, that's eye-level expertise. But we often talk about creative football players, don't we? Um, Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, going back Pele, Eusebio, Maradona, when he wasn't handling the ball, those kind of things. So there's something about um, expertise where um, you do things that most people can't do that are particularly effective. So when we talk about creative teaching, it's not just that you plan things in a structured way, which is very important, but you can weave in um, things I think we discussed before, interesting stories, examples, analogies, the way you use your voice. It's kind of uh, presentation style stuff um, that it just, just is able to... Um, give people a buzz and, you know, fire the mirror neurons in their brains. So that's the best analogy I can give you. And that's right. the golden standard of teaching, which we are trying to develop. So our approach is very much grounded in, in Jeff's work. Um, and what we're doing is saying, yeah, let's develop that teacher expertise and let's take it to a kind of adaptive expertise where you can weave together an interesting method blend, particularly using technology now, and uh, just make that learning more intrinsically motivated. It's probably the difference between Manchester City and Watford, with no disrespect <laughs> to Watford. Um, but basically, that's why the Manchester City players cost hundreds and hundreds of millions because um, some of them are just that little bit more creative with the ball. Right. Okay, so I'm going to now just extract a few stuff from his book. Uh, and by the way, uh, we if you're listening to this and you have 
never heard of Jeff Petty, you should go uh, and uh, borrow his book and read it. It's called Evidence-Based Teaching. You can find it uh, at all the uh, bookshops and also online on Amazon. Uh, but there's something that Jeff has written in his book uh, that I think we should try and dissect this a little bit from the perspective of uh, teaching and learning. So Jeff offers uh, four principles of evidence-based practice. Number one is you need all the evidence to make sound decisions. Number two is it is not enough to know what works but on what basis. Number three, you need to know what's not working in your teaching context and address these. Number four, you need to review your teaching in light of the evidence. So let's go and try and do this one by one and trying to get uh, for teachers who are listening, especially those who have just started on their careers, what does this actually mean in the context of teaching and learning? So number one, you need all the evidence to make sound decisions. What does Jeff mean when he says you need all the evidence to make sound decisions? Right, Mark. Yeah, it's nice. If we go through these, you'll see exactly what evidence-based teaching is. And yeah. It's a little bit like a detective, isn't it? You know, when, um, you know, you see these detective programs. <laughs> I've never worked in the police force, but it's all about evidence, isn't there? And there's different types. There's something called circumstantial evidence. Do you know what that means? Uh, yeah, it means it's not really hard evidence, right? Uh, as in like a clear-cut piece of evidence that would definitely convict someone. Right. So there was there was a murder in Clementi coffee shop and it just so happens that somebody saw Mark Niven Singh walking through the coffee shop around that time. Yeah. Uh, that would be evidence in a sense, wouldn't it, that you were around that time. But yeah. uh, it would be circumstantial. To, um, to to convict you, right? Convict yep. you. So when we talk about kind of uh, all the evidence, think about it in teaching. What evidence would a teacher have, right? Yep. In order to plan their lesson and facilitate it in the most effective ways. Let's just generate that because we work situationally. What evidence could you use in um, planning your lesson? Um, go through some of the things. Uh, can, can you say that again? Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Um, that what what is is the if you're planning a lesson, right, or you yeah. want to evaluate your teaching, right? Okay. Yeah. So teaching is planning it, evaluating it. Um, what is the the sources of evidence you could use in doing that? Remember, we train teachers, and we yeah. supposedly make some judgment about their um, effectiveness, efficiency, etc. So. What what the evidence sources um, that we could use? I students past uh, performances on the exam, right? Uh, some uh, historical data in terms of like uh, certain topics or concepts that every batch of students struggles with, uh, and also possibly just talking to more uh, experienced teachers who have taught the subject before. Right. Okay. So we're getting there, aren't we? If yeah. you think about it, um, that if if the students do very well in our exams, if um, when we're observed, people say, "Wow, that was a really effective, interesting lesson." The students say we're the the best teacher they've ever had, and. Uh, we do some comparison of data with other teachers, um, in, you know, in terms of uh, pupil variation. And then 
and we can then look at the way research is going to yeah. And um, it seems to be consistent with um, that kind of research. We'll start to say, mm, yeah, I think we are probably on the right track. Right. So you look at that range of evidence and you say, right, okay. It's, you know, it goes back to the other thing. It looks like a bird, sounds like a bird, behaves like a bird. It's probably a bird of some sort. So I think that's the first one is that you need to do that as opposed to some teachers who simply, um, and this is where reflective practice uh, comes into play. They go into class and because they've shown all their slides and the students um, um, haven't, haven't been disruptive, oh, that was a good lesson, I managed to cover the concept. But if you talk to the students, they're all blur at the end of the lesson. Right. So what you're saying is essentially don't, don't, put, don't be your own echo chamber, right? Consider other possible potential sources of information that can help you understand, uh, uh, understand and help you make better decisions. Fair? Yeah, it's like the good detective, hopefully, when people get convicted of crimes, that there is sufficient evidence and not simply, oh, well, he was in the area and he supports Manchester City sort of thing, you know, kind of. Right. Uh, you know, um, it, that's the basic idea is to have that kind of range and sufficient evidence. At the end of the day, we're never going to get a perfect understanding, but right. it's about being as... Um, evidence-based as you like you know given the evidence that you've got so okay i I don't want to i don't want to overstate this but uh, maybe very quickly right is this at odds with the idea of uh teacher professionalism in other words trust the teacher to know what's right yeah well look the you know it's let's look at professionalism if you look at the medical profession Okay, you know, you've only got to go back a hundred years or even um, maybe not even as far back as that. And some of it still probably goes on that doctors were going out with a bottle of whiskey or soa, some leeches, some electric shock stuff. And it was often trial and error stuff. Well, let's try this. Let's try that. And, and even today, there's people who, who will try different things uh, um, that really have got no um, substantive hardcore base. Now, the medical profession today, when you go to the doctor, you would expect them to take uh, samples of blood, urine, stools, whatever, and analysis of it, and um, hopefully kind of find um, the the actual reasons. They don't just say, oh, well, we'll, we'll take this, or we'll, we'll try that, or we'll give you a shock. So, uh, professionalism is about having a, a solid basis of knowledge upon which to to make diagnoses and to and that treatment. Um, that's why um, they spend so much time studying these things. So uh, we would want the same in teaching. We want teaching to be a profession with a solid knowledge base, um, like uh, engineering and medicine, or at least be on that same trajectory of professional development. Right, right. Okay. But uh, I want to move into number two now, which is, I think, a little bit more interesting for me. Uh, and I'm a bit, uh, I will use the word sceptical, but I'm a bit uh, interested to know how we would unpack this. And that is, it is not enough to know what works, but on what basis. Uh, does this mean that uh, you 
something might be working, but you need to know why it works. Is that how you would interpret that statement? Yeah, that's right. Now, again, um, it, I think it's useful. Look, let's suppose, I mean, let's go back to um, something like when the, I think it was the right brothers who were flying planes. That a, lot, a lot of people were experimenting with that, and a lot of people actually died. <laughs> right. And the reason they died is they hadn't fully worked out the different aspects of aeronautical engineering uh, that they thought, okay, we've got the wings and we work this out and we work that out. And they find that some feature of the design of the plane or the acceleration of the engine didn't quite work and it crashed. Now, eventually, um, the Wright brothers were able to get the thing to go up and come down without crashing, I think. Uh, and in that process, they were able to identify exactly the basis for a plane to fly. In other words, they developed that kind of um, scientific um, understanding and logic. So we want to know not just, oh, well, this seems to work, but if we're going to teach other, you imagine we're, we're teachers and we can go in the classroom and we seem to get good results. And then when somebody says, well, how does that work? What are you doing that is affecting you know, cognitive processes, motivational aspects to get those kind of results? All we're saying is, oh, uh, well, we're experts. We just, it was like Peter Drucker's quote that we really, you know, when he talks about teaching is that we haven't really understood how to make an average person teaching. Mm -hmm. We rely on the naturals. Yep. Those somehow know how to do it, right? Yeah. So if we're going to have a, a profession, we must understand how it works. So in engineering, that's why students learn all these theories and these equations, so that when they build bridges and elephants walk over the bridge, they can actually um, think it's Euler's theory, isn't it? Can work out the load and the materials and that. So you've got to understand the the basis, is it? Basis of it. Otherwise, it's idiosyncratic. And um, it's not really something we can teach others. Um, that's, I think, how I see it. And I think that's what Jeff's intent was there. Okay. So which then links to very nicely his uh, third principle, which is really about you need to know what's not working in your teaching context and address this. So when you know how, what works and how it works, and then obviously you'll be able to spot that it's not working. Uh, and then how would you... Uh, tell someone to look at this in their teaching context and then address this? What, what kind of signs should they be looking out for? Well, again, it's evidence. Uh, for yep. example, Mark, we know that if you talk, you know, in a monotone voice, um, you know, uh, that kind of speech doesn't work. Now, we've, we've sat in classroom with, with teachers and we've seen that when their voice is, is very high-pitched or it's it's slow and monotonous and they keep saying you know well if if you know why am i teaching it to you so you know there's very obvious things equally we uh, <laughs> equally we know not you know we know because science tells us that the brain in working memory will only process it used to be talked about seven plus or minus two bits of information in working memory at one time in fact um, probably modern cognitive science boils it down to about three or four. So when you teach, the idea is showing 54 PowerPoint slides in one hour on a Tuesday afternoon simply doesn't work. And there's a reason for this. So when if you if you understand um, how 
learning works and how the brain and the mind processes information, you can start seeing why some things don't work. And hopefully um, you can gradually eliminate those. It's like a football team, right? Okay. If I, if I'm Antonio Conte and being <laughs> after Italian, I can identify with that. <laughs> Notice something. And that is that when the ball goes into the box, um, there are, there's not always somebody who can, get their head on the ball before the opposing strikers. And that's why we conceded three-headed goals in, in no time at all. And um, in the last game against... ...didn't happen. So, <laughs> obviously, he's made it clear to these players with some choice words in Neapolitan, possibly, um, that they need to get their head in first. Um, yes. So there's your answer to that one, you know, by analogy. Right. What it's like, and that's what we try to do when we, you know, we we train our teachers. We we get them to um, to use good practices, how they work, and explain that. And we also get them to be able to diagnose where they are, if you like, violating some core principles of learning. Right. So I think I think that that's that's important because uh, how they know is really tied in with his idea of. Uh, Number four, which is you need to review your teaching in light of the evidence. Now, I know many teachers are very busy and many teachers really want to make an effort to be really good teachers. I, I, I would say that that is the, the goal of most, if not all, teachers. Uh, and maybe right now, and we did talk about uh, educational research and action research in the previous episode. Uh, but I think we maybe did not really talk a little bit about this idea of reflective practice. Uh, and I know that you have actually written some stuff on evidence-based reflective practice. Uh, so how then should uh, teachers uh, consider this idea about reviewing your teaching in the light of the uh, in light of the evidence? Uh, and can you tie it with the stuff that you have written on evidence-based reflective practice? Then, yeah, I mean, basically, um, it's it it comes from many years of looking at reflective practice, and we we can go back to Donald Sean. You know, talking about yep. the practitioner and reflection, in that, reflection after action, and these kind of things. And yeah, you know, that was kind of pretty groundbreaking at that time. Um, however, um, you know, to say to a teacher, you need to reflect um, in teaching when you're doing it, and to reflect on teaching after it. Well, you can only reflect on it if you've got a, a set of guiding criteria or heuristics you've got to have a basis of making judgments about your teacher and if you just if your criteria is well i i covered all the content and um, yep. showed all the slides and the students um most of them stayed in the classroom well i wouldn't say that is um <laughs> you know, terribly good. So the, the notion is that if we're doing evidence-based reflective practice, we identify key things. And we mentioned some of these before, that at the beginning of the lesson, are the students settled down? Are Is the teacher um, explaining the purpose of the lesson, showing what's going to be learned and providing them with an advanced organiser? Right, I'm going to explain for 10 minutes. We're then going to do is you're going to uh, do an activity, then we'll have a break. So the student's mind is being organised because the mind is not naturally that well organised. And that's why so many teachers have issues of students drifting away because they're not providing the structure. They're not giving the students the right cueing. 
Um, they're not using methods that are engaging. They they don't have the stories, the examples, the analogies, presentation style to keep a group of young people engaged for the most of the time. It's a really difficult job. So evidence-based reflective practice is where you have some criteria. They're mm-hmm. not. They're not. You know, they're not. Um, things that are 100% prescriptive, but they provide structure. We know that um, feedback is important. I think we've discussed that, that students need feedback. They need to um, know that they know it. But equally, if they don't know something, then the the teacher needs to create a situation. It could be students work doing some peer instruction, peer um, appraisal, but they've got to find out what the gaps are, what the misconceptions are, and do the necessary thinking to build understanding because that's what needs to happen in the process of learning. It needs to get into the mind at the level of mental representations that we call understanding. And it needs to be neurologically wired in the brain in terms of neural networks. So um, that's the kind of thing we want teachers to have this pedagogic literacy. So right. when they plan their lesson, they, you know, they, they, they make less errors and, that doesn't guarantee the lesson always works. A, a class of students on a given day, any class of students could just be not in the mood. Something's happened. I mean, they're young people and you know, some days they just, they're just not going to give much attention. Um, they're more concerned about a friend or something that's happened or whatever. Mm, mm, okay. Okay. So I think that that's quite uh, useful. So for, you know, uh, listeners who are now thinking, okay, you know, uh, educational research or even action research might be a step too far at this point in time, uh, then uh, we would suggest that uh, take a closer look at uh, reviewing your teaching and use various sources of evidence. And I think Dennis did uh, allude to or did share some of the criteria that we are looking at. Uh, and if you are interested in wanting to get that tool, uh, please do write to us uh, and we would be more than happy to share it with you. Uh, or if you need someone to, you know, if you are if you are a, a principal or a, or an administrator listening to this and you would like us to do a little uh, talk uh, or workshop, uh, feel free to uh, reach out to us as well. I'll put the link uh, to contact us in the show notes. Uh, but I just want to move on to the other part about what uh, Jeff talks about uh, when he says uh, what exactly... Uh, uh, is high quality learning and achievement and what some of these uh, principles are. So I'm going to read them off and then we'll try and do again what we did, which is to dissect them one by one. Uh, number one, students must see the value of learning. Number two, students must believe they can do it. Number three, there must be challenging goals. Number four, feedback and dialogue on proce- on progress towards the goal. Number five, establish the structure of information so it's meaning, seeing relations between concepts and make meaning. In other words, make sure that the concepts are interrelated. Number six, make sure there's plenty of time and time for repetition, actually. And this one has caught me by surprise, actually. Uh, and number seven, which is, I think, something that we have been talking about quite a while, which is teach skills as well as content. Okay, so we do have a bit of time. Uh, so let's go and dissect. Uh, all this one by one, Uh, and let's do it in this way. Uh, I'll say the principle, and then uh, you maybe might want to share a a thought or a story around it. 
Is that okay then? Yeah. And I'll do the same. So let's 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 look at the first one. Uh, students must see the value of learning. Uh, comments, any stories or any anything yeah, that well, struck you? Yeah, it, 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 it's it's very very um, obvious. I mean, if I go back to my fifteen thousand hours, um, that's the amount of time a, a typical um, person spends at school. Um, <laughs> I think I said in um, in an introduction uh, in one of my chapters, I only learned two useful things at school that I saw any value in, and one was um, playing football. <laughs> one was boxing and um, I think the football one is obvious that the value of football to me <laughs> where if you could play football uh, it was it gave you it gave you status and it was a very rough community in Oxton in the 1950s and 60s and if you could box you were able uh, I did mention that you were able to keep your lunchbox and eat it now um, mountain ranges in peru and learning french to um to be at school particularly learning it by uh, memorizing lots of nouns and vowels or whatever um was totally meaningless so um as a teacher you you have to make a value proposition and um fortunately today i think more teachers are moving that way or um many of them are they look, if you're going to learn history, well, what's the value of learning history? Don't just um, say you need to memorize the corn laws, the trade union movement and, you know, features of the Industrial Revolution. But you make it such that by looking at historical events, we can understand how different people made sense of their lives, how they were able to think better about how they live their lives, how we can improve society today. It's you've got to have a value proposition. If you're just saying, you've got to learn this for the exam, okay, that works to some extent. Um, and that's why maths teachers, a lot of them have trouble getting um, students and why students are reticent um, <laughs> algebra and geometry for the for the life of me. Um, it's, I'm not saying this isn't relevant stuff to learn, but maybe um, for most students, it's a lot of the maths students cannot see the value of it and that's why it's a difficult subject for them right right okay okay i i i hear you i hear you uh i actually have something that uh i i wanted to share for point number two which is students must believe uh they can do it uh and here's something that i i wanted to share you know when i first started teaching uh i was given uh a, a class uh that uh was for what again? Uh, for one of a better word, and it's not labeling anyone. Uh, underperforming. Uh, yeah. And they were a bit uh challenging because nobody actually told them that they were good at anything. Uh, that they can actually do it. Uh, and one of the first things that I did, and and this is interesting for me because now as I look back and I reflect back on my own experience, uh, it was I I did it because it was instinct, not because I read Jeff's book, and I don't think it was published then when I first started teaching. Anyway. Um, it, it was about really spending time giving them the belief that they could do it and then encouraging them and then, you know, doing this little scaffold, start with something simple. Then when they saw success, their eyes lit up and then it's you know, like building on that momentum and then continuing to really show them that they can do it. Um, it's really, so if you, if you are using a football analogy, it's really about, you know, acting like the manager that, makes the uh, the student or the player believe that he's super special that he's brilliant 
uh, that you know that they can do it and that the the team trusts him. Uh, and then you start to see that they actually start to believe in their own abilities. So I'm not sure if I'm pretty sure you definitely would have had similar experiences. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, today, I mean the um, the, the buzzword Carol Dweck uh, wrote a book on it. The, the notion of a growth mindset, and I think we did touch on that in previous episodes. So there's connectivity here and consistency. That that if students believe that with effort on their part. And obviously, if they've got teachers who are supporting and giving feedback, they can grow their intelligence. And quite simply, every time you learn uh, in a subject and you can do something better, you're likely to get more marks. And if you continue that process, eventually, uh, all being well, you can get a grade A. If you start getting grade A's, people start telling you're intelligent, telling you that you're intelligent. So, um, yeah, uh, it's tremendously important that we teach in ways through the messages that we give to students that if they make the effort and if they do the practice and we show them what good practice is mm-hmm. and plenty of testing, something that you repetition, because you need the repetition to actually build the neural networks in your brain so it's interesting it's not that repetition is bad do you not think that uh, Rafael Nadal and other top tennis players did a hell of a lot of repetition to develop that consistency of technique and unconscious uh, competence that kind of uh, yeah. mental physical muscles so absolutely yeah you, you've got to get people to if they don't believe they can do it they don't make the effort and cycles Self-fulfilling prophecy. So you are on there, Mark. Right. Okay, but uh, okay. Since you talk about repetition, let's jump a little bit. Uh, what about you see? Because we, I mean, every teacher complains they don't have time. It's almost impossible to cover every little thing. Uh, and I'm going to I'm going to tie this in with uh the last one as well, which is the, now I think a lot more is expected of teachers. They're not just expected to teach content. Now we have to teach skills. Uh, so where do they have time to repeat uh, and constant, consistently build that uh, ability to do things almost uh, blindfolded? That's number one. Uh, and number two, uh, isn't not every subject is uh, open to building skill through repetition. So how, how would we be addressing that? Okay. Uh, well, two things. That, um, if, if you actually teach key concepts in the subjects and this is the essential thing if we talk about when we teach teachers evidence-based teaching we teach them essentially uh, a couple of very important principles and that is that some methods work better than others and the reason is that those methods lead to better attention and better mental processing of information which means that they learn better and perform better and we also are able to connect why different methods actually work in terms of cognitive scientific principles remember the the willingham um work and what we developed in terms of the learning framework the core principles of learning now once you understand those concepts what happens in the mind is that creates a big anchor point very often in the past we're just teaching students bits of declarative knowledge which doesn't get connected doesn't get processed and that's why when the teacher goes into the class a week later and says what did we do last week it's all blur 
because yep. it's in process. So we've got to teach in ways where we focus on key concepts because that's fundamental to understanding. I could go into the neurology of that, but that that's a session in itself, and maybe we'll do that. Yeah. But the important point is that you've got to teach students how to learn the key learning strategies, our repetition our thinking builds understanding you've got to do that because if you and that will need quite a bit of what's called um um rep repetitive practice where you go through it in your mind and check it's there it's not memorization um for just pure rote it's memorization to get the information into your long-term memory connect it to other bits of information so that if i say to you can you explain what evidence-based teaching is you don't just read off some definition that is meaningless you can say right it's based on what we know about teaching methods that work best what we know about how humans learn and how we can use that information in thoughtful ways to plan a teaching lesson um so that's the the thing right okay yeah so that's my answer to that right okay so uh i think you you have succinctly uh, covered that uh but again um i think you know with the way teaching is uh changing uh and i know we're only just focusing on the teaching aspects i think uh there are other aspects as well that you would expect the students to also take some form of control uh in their learning but i think the key point here and correct me if i'm wrong then is really about teaching them the skills for them to take over and uh, not say take over but to take control of their learning so that they can meet you halfway rather than you as the teacher to do everything for them yeah, the thing is, uh, we talk about we, we need students to be more self-directed. It's a buzzword in education. We need them to become more agentic. That's another buzzword. And that is that they don't just sit there as passive recipients. They actually will speak up and say, Chair, I don't understand this. Can you explain it again? Or I'm having, I'm having difficulty seeing the relationship between X yeah. and Y. Can you do that? If you've got students who are continually, not just for the sake of it, but when they don't understand something, are prepared to um, ask the question or to show that they don't do it. The, answer, the idea is that collectively with other students and the teacher, that you can fill these gaps in knowledge. So... Um, when you run out of questions, it means that you know it. And I always say to students, look, when you have no more questions, then that's when you know it. But you've got to keep asking questions when you don't know it. Because that, that, you know, uh, Anthony Robbins, the famous success coach who earns more than me or you, Mark, funny enough. And he <laughs> says, um, <laughs> thinking is nothing more than the process of asking and answering questions and that's the point and that's why we want students to think and ask questions because those two things are connected and knowledge plus thinking equals understanding now there's a nice equation you won't see it in the textbooks but in a nutshell that's what happens if we can give students the key concepts we get yeah. them to think well use learning strategies and they will build understanding so they will learn so much better and if they learn better they believe in the process of learning they believe they can do it um as opposed to throwing we can't keep throwing more and more information uh, what That's is right. essentially a stone age brain right so can you just give us the equation again one more time for posterity yeah, sake? yeah if you like it's knowledge 
plus thinking, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Put those mm -hmm. things together, blend it up with some repetition and mm -hmm. a bit of willpower. You will build understanding, which is, you know, the mental schemata in the mind. And by doing that, it, it, at the level of the brain, it will build uh, a corresponding neural network. And when that is established, uh, we will remember it. That's the nice thing about understanding. You retain information. Otherwise, if you're just memorizing bits of information, it will quickly be forgotten because it's never established in long-term memory. Yeah. Okay, so that's perfect because I just want to add two more points and then we can wrap up this point. Yeah. Uh, is really also make sure that at the prefix, you have challenging goals uh, for the students uh, before you, you help them with their knowledge and the, with the thinking. You need to have some form of challenging goal. Uh, but more importantly also, it's not just about doing it for them, but more importantly, giving them feedback and having a constant dialogue on checking on their progress and checking their understanding, checking their metacognition, and then seeing how far they are from the goal and providing feedback and then getting them to act on the feedback towards their goal. Yeah, absolutely, because feedback is that two-way dialogue of what do I know, what do I not know, how do I fill the gap, is it a knowledge gap, is it a misconception, am I not doing enough thinking to make those connections and build understanding, and yeah. quality feedback, the manner, the timing, and also the challenging goal bit is important because you want to give students things that stretch them but are attainable with effort and that's the important thing and that's where the practice comes in right you're here now let's move it a bit forward do the deliberate practice get the feedback and that's how we build skills and that's how we build understanding over time good repetitive space practice perfect so yeah, jeff I, really yeah. hit the button with those kind of things it, and that's why if i look at the work that i did in core principles the people jeff influenced me the most because when i read his book evidence-based teaching everything fell into place um quite simply um and that's why i called um that first book on creative teaching uh creative teaching an evidence-based approach because i basically mm. drew jeff's work and obviously i then looked at other writers bransford willingham and these and saw that the the two things were coming together the methods that worked and the cognitive science and they started to blend together um what I did and Jeff's most recent book which is very popular I had to teach even better um, through evidence-based teaching I might not have got the words right but essentially what Jeff has done is increasingly calibrated um, the methods at work with cognitive science and that is state-of-the-art now that's evidence-based creative teaching really nice uh, because you've then got people who've got that pedagogic literacy they've got the competence and more they try to experiment and try things out and blend methods and use e-tools that you are so good at you can create that kind of icing on the cake uh, it goes back to that analogy that um, the creative teachers just are able to draw things together, analogies, things that you wouldn't think are connected, like David Beckham taking a free kick to use that to teach Newton's law of motion. So um, 
that's really um, you know Jeff really um, you know was um, was key I think in that revolution and he talks about in the book uh, I think it was on the cover that teaching is ready this is 2009 um, it's ready to embark on a revolution and become evidence-based and, and move away from fad and fashion and it's still there's still a lot of fad and fashion around the learning styles and you know for certain forms of constructivism that oh everybody's got to find meaning in their own subjective ways of course they are but you know teaching has got to have a solid base of knowledge that's bound up with how the brain works and more importantly because it's easier to study is you know the psychological aspects um, mm. you know cognitive neuroscience um lags will inevitably lag behind our understanding of the psychological principles so um but together they represent you know the future of learning i think in many ways right okay so uh i think uh, i just want to wrap up by saying that jeff actually uh has also in uh his book talked about uh, some of the uh, variety of methods that we can use to bring these principles to life. Uh, in the in the interest of time, we won't be covering it in this podcast. Uh, but maybe we can do that in the in the next podcast where we take it a step further. Uh, by dissecting a, a bit more of his uh, advocated methods such as supported experiments yeah. uh, and active schemes of work, and also I think it it serves to note that he doesn't. Uh, discourage us from using conventional teaching strategies such as lectures, demonstrations, active methods and so forth. I think uh, what he is trying to say is when we choose these methods, we need to, and I want to relate it to the principle, really understand what is the evidence that we have before us before actually choosing the method to help with the student learning. So that's what we will do in the next episode um, uh, where we will talk a little bit more about his methods. Does that sound good? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, these traditional methods, um, the idea that you explain something to students in a very clear way, showing them what the key concepts are, uh, using good stories and examples, that, that's a good method. It's called direct instruction, and it's really important. But what it doesn't um what it doesn't mean is that you spend 45 minutes with a monotonous voice just talking about lots of content. So direct instruction, explanation as a method is an IFF method. But like anything else, you, we don't want the same dinner every night. So that's why a variety of methods and a variety of media is an important principle. Now, Jeff, in his... In, um, um, in uh, in talking about his most recent book, um, as said, he's incorporated quite a lot more of cognitive scientific principles, and he actually says it, it it's actually cheaper than the previous book. So <laughs> Jeff is someone who tries to uh, uh, give good value in his books, and that um, and they're not as expensive as other people who kind of fill them up with stuff that may not be so transferable. So um, I, I would recommend um, reading Jeff's uh, most recent book. But if you want to go back to the source, the um, evidence-based uh, teaching, a practical approach is, yeah. is a landmark book in, in education globally. And basically Jeff adds to that. And these books have been translated into many languages, uh, including uh, Mandarin. So um, um, 
I, I do keep in touch with Jeff and I've got some, uh, I've done some pods with him and there's bits that you can add to this and I'll ask him if he'll come on again. Um, yeah. He's a busy guy and, um, uh, and see what he can add in the present scenario. Right. Cool. Okay. So that nicely wraps up our first part. Uh, we'll move on to the second part and this is where usually we will share something that we have read or used uh, or an edutech tool that uh, I have found interesting. Uh, maybe let's start with you, Dan. Anything that you found interesting that you wanted to share with anyone or anything that you read or did? <laughs> Mark, I'll be really honest. Um, the the thing that uh, I would share is the work that we're doing on providing a guide for students to be able to... Um, become more agentic and manage their teachers i think that's a really good project and uh, i'm letting you do most of the work on that at the moment so please <laughs> give me <laughs> but yep. i will uh, i will put a shift in and i have actually did a bit yesterday i've got caught up in a few administrative things here but um yeah it's an exciting project and i think um if we are training teachers to teach better and we are t uh, um, helping students to learn better, those two things eventually be come together. It's a singularity in educational quality. So, um, so that's been my week, um, basically. Right. Okay. So uh, I don't actually have uh, EduTech tool this week, uh, but I did uh, buy something online that I wanted to share with everyone. And I really is... bought something. You, yeah. you, you're so good at finding all the free stuff. It yeah. must be good if you've bought it. Yeah, I actually bought it. And, it. and it's not a software. It is a hardware. Because, you know, now we do a lot of online meetings, online teaching yeah. and so forth. Uh, and I realized that having a good headset, a microphone headset, uh, is going to be important. And I found something at a ridiculously good price point. Uh, it costs 49 Singapore dollars and it's a headset and it's by Creative Technologies. Uh, and Creative Technologies, uh, those people who are into computers will know that they are very well known for their sound blaster cards uh, in the computer. So they make audio, uh, you know, to bring that whole experience to everyone. So uh, I was just browsing because I wanted to look for a good piece of headset and I found one for really a price of only 49 Singapore dollars. And if I'm not wrong, that would be about 35, 36 USD. Uh, and they ship it around the world. It's it's over-the-ear headphone. It's wired, not wireless. But I think what was uh, what prompted me to get it was uh, it actually has an indicator to tell you if you are too loud in your meetings. Now, how many headphones do you know actually has an indicator that tells you that you are too loud in your online meetings? And this one has it at a ridiculous price point. So I decided to buy it uh, to test it out. So I just ordered it uh, actually before we came and did this podcast. Uh, and I would look forward to using it. And then I'll share the review uh, of, of, uh, of the product in, in maybe later episodes. Yeah, I mean, that does sound good. I, I've got this iTech um, headphone. I don't actually use that much. I think my voice is so loud anyway. Um, um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I, as I say week in, week out, um, we need to do some session on summarising the EdTech tool because every week you seem to have something that's of interest. And the, the thing is... Um, 
Put, putting it all together in a session will... Anyhow, we've got another 20 or 30 sessions to do, so I'm sure that will come into play. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that really brings us to the end to today's episode. Thank you again for joining us. And if you found today's episode interesting, again, please do share it with someone you know, just one person that you know. If you're going jogging and you're listening and you know, can you just just point that person to our podcast? Uh, and if you wanted to get in touch with us, you can do so by writing to us at evidencebasedcreativeteaching at gmail.com. Once again, it is at evidencebasedcreativeteaching at gmail.com. I'll put that email in the show notes so that you know how to get in touch with us. Okay, so it's been an interesting conversation. Uh, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Then, uh, what's up for the rest of the week? Um, basically, um, continuing some projects that I'm working on and some admin things I need to do here and... Uh, um, and try to keep warm. Okay. Nice. So we'll see everybody in the next episode. Take care and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Yeah, and goodbye from me. <laughs>